0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Michelle Delaney, and Margaret Weidkamp, editors of Smithsonian American Women, Remarkable Objects and Stories of Strength, Ingenuity, and Vision from the National Collection. Welcome, Michelle and Margaret. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Um, Michelle, would you like to go first?
0: Sure, thank you, Christina. Uh, Again, my name is Michelle Delaney, and I am currently the Assistant Director for History and Culture at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, and uh, I have spent uh, a long time at Smithsonian. It's been 30 years, and uh, really proud of that, and really proud of this book. So so happy to be talking about it today. Uh, I started my journey uh, 30 years ago as an intern and then a volunteer in the National Museum of American History's Political History Division, and ironically, my project was to go through. The physical catalog cards for the political history collection and pull out all of the first ladies and women's history objects so that an inventory could be started for what was then a planned new first ladies exhibition for 1992. So I was able to, at that very early stage of my career, think about how much of the women's history material at the National Museum was not on view, had not been researched. And I was really driven to think about that fully and and talk to the curators in charge about what I was finding. Uh, And luckily, uh, getting to know some people at that museum, uh, I ended up being hired as a museum technician in the Division of Photographic History. And that really changed the course of my career. Uh, I worked there for 20 years and worked my way up to full curator, uh, did lots of exhibitions and some publications, and then had the opportunity to move to the undersecretary's office in what's known as the Smithsonian Castle. Uh, And I worked for the undersecretary for history, art, and culture. And the Smithsonian had grown so much during that early part of my career That the history and culture units, you know, there were some separate museums. Uh, There were some research centers, you know, that were different and apart from the American History Museum. And that's really when I decided uh, that I was truly interested in collaboration across the Smithsonian, also with outside universities and museums. And uh, I did that for about 10 years. And last year, I got the opportunity to transfer to the National Museum of American Indian and lead curatorial uh, and the history and culture research division for the national museum of the American Indian. And so just as this book was wrapping up, uh, I made that change. uh, And it's, it's been a great one. And I look forward uh, to the new projects, Uh, but this book project uh, has a special place uh, in my own heart for the work that I've done at the Smithsonian, because it brings so many of the untold stories of American women's history to the forefront. And, uh, just hope that uh, many people can, can read uh, through the stories. And it's a book that you don't have to read uh, front to back in, in any one sitting. You can flip back and forth and, and learn so much about what's been collected to date and maybe where some of the gaps are. So thank you, Christina.
1: Thank you. And Margaret, will you please tell us about yourself?
2: Sure. My name is Margaret camp I'm the chair of the Space History Department and a curator at the National Air and Space Museum. I've been at the Smithsonian for a little over 15 years, which for the Smithsonian makes me a kind of entry mid-level employee. Curators especially have decades-long careers uh, where they really get to range across the collections and build what they know, um, and it's a wonderful place to get to explore in that way. And in some ways that really reflects that my own path of how I came to the Smithsonian. I started really my interest in history as an undergraduate, really got caught fire with a great professor at the University of Pittsburgh, Maureen Greenwald, who was teaching women's history. And I just thought that was history like I had never studied before, really evidence-based primary sources, um, but also looking at women's lives which had not often been part of the stories of the generals and the presidents and the laws that I had learned before. And I was fascinated by that kind of a bottom-up approach to history. And so when I went to graduate school, I studied at Cornell, and I ended up writing my dissertation and my first book about a women's astronaut testing project from the late 1950s, Um, short-lived, privately funded. But it really then began to bridge my initial interest in women's stories to where I came to now have my career in space history. I ended up with the chance to have a fellowship at the NASA Headquarters History Office um, while I was doing that doctoral work and um, to have some time to really dive into space history. And I fell in love with that as a subject area because it's so broad. I think it requires so much of you to understand politics and science and physics, biology, but also um, bottom up what's possible, top down what's possible in terms of legislation. And so the chance to write this piece of women's history in the space history field uh, was what then brought me into being a professional historian. But I actually taught women's studies for three years at a um, small liberal arts college in upstate New York. And I literally drove through Seneca Falls, New York, the site of the 1848 convention that's so often talked about in terms of women's history every day on my way to and from campus. And so it was a wonderful place to really dive into women's studies and women's stories as a historian. So I came to the Smithsonian to work on the cultural history of spaceflight. And in recent years, then, as the American Women's History Initiative started as a pan-Smithsonian project to really bring scholars together across the Smithsonian units to look at our common interest in women's history. There was part of that that just felt like coming home uh, to be in the company of scholars who were interested in these same kinds of stories. And so I landed at Michelle's table as a part of the committee, doing some of the work and having some of the discussions about putting this book together, really drawing across the Smithsonian's rich collections, of art science technology history and culture and thinking about how we could put this Smithsonian American women's book together and um i think i had so much to say that i ended up talking my way onto the editorial committee and it just was a wonderful place to try to address through material culture through physical objects and artifacts how the smithsonian across all of its many units really can tell this rich story of American women. And so it's been a wonderful bringing together, coming home of all of these parts of my scholarly life to get to weave some of the story of women in aviation and spaceflight through these other stories about American women writ large. And Michelle,
1: you share in the book that it was about 2017 when you had the idea for this book. What inspired you to have the idea for the book and and to to do the work to bring it to life.
0: What inspired me to do the book? Um, I conceived of this book shortly after a congressional commission report was delivered to Congress on whether there should be a National Women's History Museum. And this was about a four-year process with this commission. Uh, you know, since 1996, there's been uh, a digital presence uh, and a group uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, you know, working towards uh, the potential for a National Women's History Museum. And uh, so finally, uh, there was funding put towards that. And uh, many people had discussions over the four years and the report was given. And and within that report uh, was a small couple of sentences uh, that said uh, as a recommendation that the Smithsonian should consider an American Women's History Initiative, a five-year initiative that would bring together new resources, new funding uh, for new curators, new collections, new exhibitions, new books, and, and the products that are very traditionally Smithsonian. And um, I was uh, able to read that report and talk to some of my colleagues working in the undersecretary's office for, uh, for History, Art, and Culture about what this initiative might look like, what, w- what would define uh, this initiative. And you know, as you can expect, when any new center or initiative or museum is considered for the Smithsonian, There's a lot of discussion and there's a lot to contemplate. And I started to feel like I wanted to do something that would help, that would bring scholars together and that would be a a product that could jumpstart some of this work for what the initiative could be. And I had some experience with that. I had worked with the Smithsonian um, Books editors uh, and a large team of about 50 curators to do a book on the Civil War 150th, the uh, commemoration for the uh, 150-year anniversary of the end of the Civil War. And uh, I took that idea in, in 2011 to Smithsonian Books and was able to get dozens of curators interested in working on a book together, Uh, a book that didn't have a whole lot of text about any one object, um, but it did represent um, a full, you know, breadth of uh, the collections across the Smithsonian that represented the Civil War era just before, just after. And it was a great project to get to know colleagues and to better understand where collecting was for Smithsonian. And it got to be a bestseller for Smithsonian books. And we made uh, some royalties and we got to do additional programs. And again, we were very proud of how we could bring this topic to the forefront and to the general public. And I thought, hmm, doesn't have to be a cookie cutter duplicate of that book. We want to do something very specific uh, for American women's history Maybe I could get some folks interested in this, and so I talked to some folks uh, in—I said Smithsonian Castle and in, in leadership, the Undersecretary, uh, and and some others, and then I uh, talked to Carolyn Gleason, who uh, leads Smithsonian Books, and said, "What do you think about trying to do something for Women's History?" Uh, we all thought, uh, you know, it might be needed, and then after getting yeses from all of those folks, um, I decided to call a meeting. And I thought some folks would laugh at me because I invited a hundred people. And uh, I had got to know in my new role uh, at Smithsonian uh, as a senior program officer for history and culture, it was my job to help build research teams. So I I was every day reaching out across the Smithsonian uh, to get to know more of the research staff uh, the archivists, the historians, the librarians, uh, the curators. And so I called 100 of my best friends to a meeting. Uh, and I guess about 35 showed in person, another 25 emailed and said, I'm really interested, but I can't make your meeting. Tell me what happens. Uh, and so I knew right away that I had about 60 people interested to work on this project. And I knew we, were, we could do this and uh, we had the meeting i you know told them about my initial concept to to model after the Civil War 150 book and what did they think uh, some thought I was crazy some said there's too much material it's more than one book uh, others um, you know had other opinions and I said well i think I think we can do this and we can figure out along the way what that initiative, the American Women's History Initiative, is going to be. But underlying all of this was the fact that I needed these people to get to know one another because the Smithsonian had expanded. We had the National Museum of the American Indian. We opened in 2016 the National Museum of African-American History and Color, uh, excuse me, Culture. And then we had the Smithsonian Latino Center. Then we also had the Asian Pacific American Center. And so we were being uh, more diverse at the Smithsonian. We were being more inclusive and we were thinking so much more broadly about collecting. And so when this group got together to think about it, it was the beginnings of the editorial committee. And we did bring a few other people in. I don't know if Margaret was at the first meeting that we had. Um, But that meeting uh, led to more discussions for a book contract. And within a few months uh, that was signed and we were off and running on trying to bring together the lists, the list of objects from all of the museums and how could we be most inclusive? How many units could we get to participate? My goal was to have as many museums and research centers and libraries and archives represented in this book as possible. So you can, you can tell I'm still excited about this project and so proud that, that we were able to make it happen.
1: And you, you say in the book that between this, this group that you've assembled, they they think about it and they come back and they suggest over 2000 objects and artifacts, and you have to whittle that down to 300. How do you do that?
0: Yes, uh, indeed. The curators from around the institution pulled together quickly about a list of 2,000 objects that we already had in museum collections uh, regarding you know, women's history topics, um, trailblazers you know, of women who had accomplished so much, and then everyday items as well. And, you know, this is what we do. Uh, we grapple with uh, curating down our list of objects for exhibitions and and programs and and websites all the time, but we don't always do it with such a large group and such a diverse group. And so we had to have some more meetings to come together and put those lists up, you know, in PowerPoints, you know, projected so that we could go around the table and we could really talk about the significance of these objects and what it meant uh, for the research that was needed for these objects research that had already been done and the perspectives of of those uh, men and women around the table. We were primarily women curators around the table, uh, but to have that uh, best discussion, uh, we needed so many people to be present. And I have to tell you, uh, when we got curators from the National Air and Space Museum, the curators from the National Museum of the American Indian, curators from many of the art museums uh, around the institution, and uh, anthropologists at the table, the discussion became very different. And um, after Margaret spent one weekend thinking about this list that we were putting together and thinking about some of the early conversations, uh, it was Margaret that uh, helped us have the biggest breakthrough in thinking about the history timeline that we wanted to present in this book and how we would frame uh, the stories of these women and these objects that we would put into the book. And once we broke free of a very standard American history timeline that was geared more to history that was known, uh, more than military history, uh, but down to the fact of, of who some of these women were what the causes they were moving forward with, the movements, uh, the accomplishments that they had made within communities. Uh, We really were able to get to the next level. And uh, again, we have to remember that this all came together from that congressional report. But we have a very important anniversary coming up uh, this August. In 2020, it's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Uh, To the Constitution, the ratification, and and women's suffrage. But sitting at that table with all of our editors, we were also understanding that not all women got the right to vote uh, at that moment in uh, 1920. Uh, You know, it was not so for uh, American Indian women. Uh, There would be four more years uh, till the Indian Citizenship Act, and then the 1950s uh, before. you know, Asian American women uh, would in fact get the right to vote. And then all of the civil rights movement uh, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there was still so much to be done. We had so much to do in this book and it went well beyond suffrage, but we could not, not be very conscious of the objects around women's history and the history of suffrage in America. And we needed to be inclusive and diverse in that story much more than the Smithsonian um, had ever been. So uh, kudos to Margaret and many of my colleagues who helped us get to that point. And I want, I want to let her uh, talk about this as well.
1: Yes, please. That was going to be my next question. Margaret, tell us about this framework that this valuable framework that you provided that helped shape the book so much and the, and the conceiving of how to shape the book.
2: Well, I thought that was just part of what was so much fun. These meetings were large and they were unwieldy, and kudos to Michelle for being able to keep us on track and create a real product out of it at the end. But in the, uh, you know, it felt like one of your better graduate seminars, right? Where you really get to dig into core definitions. And, you know, in many ways, the Smithsonian American Women seems Clear, And then you start to really dig into it. You know, what do you mean American? So at what, are we only going to start with the beginnings of the United States? Are we going earlier than that? Um, do we, we can't start the book with, you know, and then white women arrived at Jamestown. That's just not the right point to start this story. That's not what our scholarship reflects anymore. So, um, we want to make sure that we're including the Native American women who were on this continent long before white people came, or before the Spanish came in the West, or other explorers. Um, and I thought that our colleague uh, Cecile Gontome, who is from the National Museum of the American Indian, was brought a great voice in there to say, you know, Native American women should be named. They deserve the respect of individuality and being named, and not just was hand waving as them as a group and so that was then a challenge to say okay where do we in our earliest years of this chronological story find the stories that represent those women in the way that they should be represented and respected and then what do we mean by women's objects uh object Made by a woman, used by a woman, an image of a woman, image taken by women, um, you know, or painted by them. When you're getting into art, are we talking about art that represents women or art that's done by women? Um, and the same things when we talked about science and technology, we were looking at, you know, are we looking at a uh, telescope or an instrument that was developed or built by women, or are we looking at how they used it? So it really, I thought, made us question our categories uh, in ways that were just fascinating. And then as historians, what we try to do is put things in order and think about chronology. And a critical thing is always, where do you break, right? Where do you start chapter one, where do you end chapter one, where do you start chapter two, where do you end chapter two, and what does that say to you as a scholar about how you're framing and organizing this material, and so we really started talking about what are the significant dates if you step out of the kind of received, understood American history, and really start to try to think about American women's history, and The gathering in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848 and the writing of the Declaration of Sentiments is often held up as a really critical moment, but we also know as we're looking at the scholarship now that that was a very limited statement that didn't include, frankly, most American women. So we ended up having a great discussion about really the point in the middle of the 19th century is really 1865, where you end up with millions of African American women being freed. That's the date that we wanted to look at, not necessarily the Seneca Falls date. And it really, a lot of the scholarly discussion around this centenary, which got us together on talking, then made us look really critically at what does it mean to talk about woman suffrage, to talk about women's political, cultural, economic rights, and how do we reflect that in the objects that are chosen and in the overall organization of the book. And I thought that um, That whittling down of the thousands of objects to hundreds of objects that would then be written about by dozens and dozens of curators, I thought was a wonderfully collaborative process that made us really question our core assumptions, even down to what do we mean by American, what do we mean by women, Um, To then come up with these, what are the richest stories with the best objects? Because that's really what draws then on the strength of what we have at the Smithsonian is to look at what are these core pieces in our collections across the many Smithsonian museums. And then also to be thinking about, you know, what are the most recent things that we've been bringing into the collections that start to enrich and deepen and diversify those stories so it was a great collaboration to sit down and try to sort through all of those things and I think the results really show in the book if you look not only at the objects but at the lists of dozens of curators across the Smithsonian who each wanted to bring their particular perspective into this story as the whole in many ways that I think reflects the richness and the diversity of the American women's story and thus how it's represented at the Smithsonian.
1: And that really uh, explains well how the chapters are laid out. Thank you. Um, So the book has five chapters and they're not, as you say, the traditional ways of conceiving of time. They're not each example, for example, divided by a century or by a, a A particularly important election are some of the things that we're used to seeing in history books. And in fact, they're not even evenly divided into time chunks, which is another often device that's used in history books. So Chapter one is Tradition and Resistance in a Young Nation, and it's from 1600 to 1864, as you say, and it opens with Seneca Finery. Can you tell us about this finery and how really this image captures that theme of tradition and resistance in a a young nation? It's such a glorious image that you have there, um, and our listeners don't have the book in front of them, so as much as you can describe about that would be lovely as well.
0: Of course, and I'll I'll take the lead here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the Seneca Finery, you know, we talked a lot in our editorial group about how to start the book, uh, how to end the book, uh, you know, the the date ranges for each of these chapters, and we knew we should be starting uh, in that um, pre colonial era, and that we would most likely be getting the book with Native American women's objects. And so you'll see um, that we do that in the book, but we also wanted to highlight uh, one object at the start of each chapter. And so when we thought about how to start the book, we had a lot of discussions about dresses. There were, there are a lot of dresses and a lot of clothing that represent American women across all of the collections that we were discussing. And um, this dress, it's a calico dress. And uh, as we say in the book, it's decorated with 216 etched silver brooches with glass beads and silk ribbon. And it belonged to uh, Yata, who is also known as Charlotte Sundown. Uh, and she was um, living between 1853 and 1911 and a member of the Beaver clan of the Tanawanda Band of the Seneca Indians. And um, this dress um, is just representative for for many of us, uh, again, in the editorial group, um, the importance of the clan mothers and the importance of the authority um, that these mothers um, actually had at uh, their community, their council meetings. And um, the artwork that is also crafted into this and the beauty of it, um, makes it a very special piece. And, and you can see, uh, some things like this on display at the museum, at the American Indian museum, but there are so many of these, um, beautiful pieces in collection storage that are never seen. So to start, uh, the book with, uh, something, uh, that signifies the strength and, um, uh, the commitment of the women to their communities was very important to us. And uh, I think that it, um, it works well uh, in that respect. So is that a piece that's
1: currently on display or is that one that's in the archives?
0: I think it has been on display, uh, but uh, as most textile objects are, there's a rotation that happens. So you might see it again, uh, but uh, uh, for right now, I believe it is not on display.
1: And the preservation aspect of all of the materials in the Smithsonian collection is so incredibly important. And when working with artifacts to photograph them and to put them in a book, that that especially comes to the forefront. Can you tell us a bit about how you, how you do that process of creating images of these incredibly uh, rare and for many of them because of their age, so incredibly fragile items?
0: Yes. Preservation and conservation of the objects uh, was at the forefront of our discussion because some objects that were fragile or needed um, conservation might not be able to be included in the book because of the tight time frame we were on. Again, we were hoping that this book would be available by the end of 2019 and, and definitely for the year uh, 2020 for the centennial of the uh 19th Amendment. So we were on a very fast pace to produce this book. Uh, And luckily, uh, most of the objects were ready to go, ready to be photographed or had been photographed in high res, beautiful digital photographs. Uh, But, um, you know, some of the uh, dresses Uh, some of the embroidery, uh, the cross stitch pieces, uh, you know, those are things that have uh, deteriorated over time just because of age. Uh, And, uh, you know, we had to take uh, a really uh, close look at um, the condition of the objects and how they would photograph. But I have to say, um, from my recollection, you know, we were able to get the majority of items uh, we wanted ready to go, uh, both from a research standpoint and from the preservation standpoint to be to be photographed. And uh, again, a heavy lift when uh, you're working with 100 authors uh, and 17 museums. Uh, the coordination uh, was greatly handled by our project manager, Jennifer Schneider, uh, in making sure that. This was a, a seamless approach. Uh, and Jennifer was also responsible for uh, the timelines that you see at the beginning of each of the chapters. And when there wasn't room for an object to be in a chapter, uh, a lot of times we didn't have to you know, not include it. We were able to put it uh, in a smaller scale into the timelines, which I think were very necessary, again, for people to understand, you know, all of the chronology and all of the uh, different types of movements and activities that were happening uh, from a women's history standpoint, but also from a national standpoint. So those timelines became key to the book as well.
2: I just really liked how much we were able to include, not only in terms of objects and the range from art to artifacts um, to instruments, uh, vehicles, all really the breadth of the kinds of things that the Smithsonian collects, but the decision then also, Michelle, that you brought to us of having these uh, women's voices. And so being able to feature people, and women really in their own voice. So not only their story being told by curators through the objects, but having these sidebars where we have important topics and the women themselves actually able to speak. So bringing in a letter or a piece of poetry or things like that that allow uh, the women's voices themselves to be there as well as their products or whatever it is that they had used. And I thought the diversity of that really weaves together and makes it a great book to kind of flip through and be able to dive in and out of over time.
1: And because of all of those elements, when you hold the book, it's a bit like holding a women's museum in your hands, which is particularly lovely at the time that we're taping because we're all on work from home. There's a pandemic. People aren't able to to get out to do the summer vacations they had planned or the school field trips they had planned. And this Book really brings the museum to you to, to have in your home, to hold in your hands, to reclaim those voices and see those objects. And that's really reflected in part of the mission, if you will, that you put in the introduction, where you say this volume brings diverse women's stories from the margins of history into the center. And that's very apparent in chapter two. It opens right with a story about Ida B. Wells. Uh, there's a fire, there's a lynching party, and it's it's really very vividly told. It could be ripped from today's headlines. Um, there's this riot starting because an African-American man has been appointed as postmaster, and one of the first people to report on this story was Ida B. Wells. Um, can you bring that story to, to life for the listeners for us?
2: I think that this really is... Sadly, it's still incredibly relevant. Um, the story of Ida B. Wells and her um, anti-lynching campaigns and her reporting. Um, recently she just very recently, she was actually recognized with a Pulitzer Prize. And that was after we had um, put this book together. So those stories of race, are really central to an understanding of the American story to how we have all struggled over the centuries with these questions of of freedom and equality and people's share in the broader American dream and that American story. And I think that was really important for us with the book, to be able to include those faces and those stories throughout as really central to the understanding of America and this whole democratic project that we have been a part of. And so being able to have the Ida B. Wells story in there, I thought was really um, very important and very powerful, especially as a kind of turning point from our consideration of the early roots of the United States into the more developed sense in the mid-late 19th century of um, the power of the pen, the power of of one woman's voice to really confront racial violence through journalism and bring these things together.
0: And I wanted to add to that uh, that... The National Museum of African-American History and Culture, you know, those collections were gathered specifically for that museum. Collections from American history and the other museums were not just transferred to the museum. There was a new collecting effort. And part in in part, it could be a different kind of collecting than had ever been done at Smithsonian because... Uh, women's history um, became deeply embedded in the collecting for the museum. And when our team spoke with uh, Lonnie Bunch, the then founding director of the African-American History and Culture Museum, who is now our secretary of the Smithsonian, uh, when we asked him about this project, he's, he was all in. He's like, yes, of course, um, you know the museum's gonna be well-represented and, and you know, here are the curators you need to talk to first. And then he said to me in particular, and there's one story that I want in the book. And that is the story, the powerful story of Ida B. Wells. And here's the photograph that we've collected. And so we knew from the start, the significance uh, that Wells's story meant um, to Lonnie Bunch. Uh, and it also helped to invigorate the conversation about uh, African American women and what you know what we would consider across this book, uh, specifically, as Margaret had said, from 1865 forward. But how to um, very thoughtfully include the collections that were brand new to the Smithsonian. And uh, uh, I do have uh, one regret, being a curator of photography, that more photography, uh, you know formats you know daguerreotypes tin types uh, you know gelatin prints of the 20th century uh, you know I, I wanted more all all the way through but we only had so many pages but this particular photograph uh, is special for a lot of reasons and and that's why uh, we were focused uh, from Ida, on Ida B Wells from the start
1: and she really exemplifies chapter two, which is entitled The Road to Reform, and it covers the period of 1865 to 1920. And that chapter, uh, as you, you've alluded to, has so many uh, wonderful artifacts in it. It has things from the dead letter office, it has um, the hist- some of the items from the history of suffrage. Um, it also has the first lady's dresses. And you say in the uh, copy there that it's one of the most popular collections in the Smithsonian. And I remember when I worked at the Smithsonian in the 90s, I was a graduate assistant for Dr. Bernice Johnson-Regan, um, that before I even made it up to see what office I was supposed to be working in, I made a detour to, to go see those. And as you've said, dresses um, are such a part of um, the feminine ideal, uh, of, of, um, women's history, uh, there's so much embedded in that. And particularly in the first ladies' dresses. And you talk about how that collection and the interpretation of how to show them has changed from perhaps an original idea of them as president's wives to them as first ladies who did a really valuable work. Um, and the book shows, uh, several of the the first lady's dresses. How did you um, conceive of this chapter and choose out of the beautiful collection, these three uh, dresses? Can you tell us more about that?
0: Yes, I can tell you more about it. There were many discussions. Margaret, did you want to go first?
2: I was just going to share that I, I share with you, Christina, that uh, that's one of my favorite exhibits. I remember seeing it as a girl. It's one of the things that I think... Um, made me feel like the Smithsonian, it was one of the most, had a place for women, right? It was one of the most obvious places when you were a girl and you came to visit it that, you know, the family assumed that, oh, that's what you're going to want to go see. And it really um, is a, I think, a memorable touch point for visitors over the decades coming to the museum. Um, And so I thought it was a great entree point to be able to start with what people expected and then unpack it a little bit. So I'll let uh, Michelle tell the story of how we did that unpacking.
0: So I, I need to start uh, with some of our discussions and they were hard discussions. I conceive of this book with a first lady section, no questions asked. And then I got to the table with my colleagues and they're like, well, do we want to include first ladies? And I'm like, well, it's a century old collection. And of course, I had my own experience, you know, working with that collection as an intern, and I felt very strongly that uh, we were on the heels of very strong curators um, with Margaret Clapthor early and mid-century, mid 20th century. Edith Mayo, uh, when I was starting at the museum, uh, was opening up the doors to you know think about uh, these objects in different ways. Uh, but in 1912. Uh, you know, a dress collection comes to the Smithsonian, uh, highlighting the first ladies and, you know, how significant, uh, appropriately significant uh, to, you know, balance the work of their husbands in in the White House. But I wanted to know, um, first, when I started at the Smithsonian, first seeing the the exhibition as a teenager when I was visiting um, Washington and wanting to then work at the Smithsonian and getting to do that. When I finally got uh, working on this project as an intern, um, I learned that there were so much more. And I actually wrote my master's thesis for George Washington University on the um, public and private roles of the first lady. And the public role really did include, um, you know, first ladies during the campaign, first ladies after they were in office and, and what they did. So. We had the hard conversations about whether to include the first ladies in the book, and the curators now, led by Lisa Kathleen Grady, uh, you know, were were wonderful in helping us to think about uh, which dresses to select: um, Helen Taft, Mary Lincoln's velvet day dress, uh, Melania Trump's inaugural gown. Uh, you know, we had lots of debates um, about Michelle Obama's dress, and you see that, you know. Uh, sh- Michelle Obama is represented later in the book in the portrait that goes to the National Portrait Gallery that's commissioned uh, for the First Lady. Um, but we all also include things like campaign buttons and advertisements and Barbara Bush's, you know, desert camouflage jacket when she was um, traveling with her husband uh, to see uh, troops in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, the you know, the versatility of these women and the strength of these women uh, were you know, in the discussions as well. And so I was very happy uh, that uh, we got to this point where we did include this strong section. And then uh, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, has uh, a special voices sec- uh, section as well. Uh, so it was it was important to me. And um, like all the other discussions, uh, it was just a privilege to be part of the discussion with my colleagues and see you know, the vision come to fruition. And, and First Ladies is a memorable, a memorable exhibition for so many visitors to Smithsonian. Um, how it will change in the future, I don't know. But for many generations, uh, we have been thinking about history um, through uh, the lens of, of the White House, at least for the National Museum of American History. And it does spill in Uh, to the discussions for the other units uh, and for many of our collaborations uh, with universities and uh, with outside museums. So it was important to include the dresses plus.
1: And that leads to kind of an interesting uh, curatorial question. So when Mary Lincoln was choosing her dress. And you have uh, also a section where you include her relationship with her dressmaker elsewhere in the book and what an important person that she was in, in Mary Lincoln's life. Um, but there was no TV, there There was no uh, Smithsonian at the time that she was having that gorgeous dressmate. But by the time Melania is choosing her dress, she knows she's in a completely different world. Um, how does one go about collecting those dresses from the first lady? How, how do you get Melania's dress from her? And do they give you any sense of how the fact that it, they now know at some point women began knowing, oh my goodness, this is going to end up in the Smithsonian. Does that affect what they choose to wear?
0: Well, I think Lisa Kathleen can tell this story better than I can. But uh, we we have been a Smithsonian since 1846, established uh, in DC. So uh, we've been around for almost 175 years. And in the beginning, no, uh, the women did not know that you know, they would be asked to donate a dress to the Smithsonian. Uh, but certainly, uh, uh, since the 20th century, and especially the latter part of the 20th century, it does come into their uh, mind as they're you know selecting dresses for the inauguration uh, and outfits uh, around the inaugural events, and it's become also very important uh, not only for the stylized dress that they would like to be seen in, but also you know what designers are making the dress, creating the dress. Uh, what is is that legacy as well? So. Uh, it's uh, an honor, I think, from the um, dress events, uh, the donation ceremonies that I have been able to attend. Um, I actually um, it was around for Barbara Bush's donation ceremony all the way to Melania. And uh, it is a very meaningful uh, process uh, and highly um, thought of by these women to think about what the dress will be, which one will get donated, what they will say at the donation event, uh, and and that's a powerful moment where they're on stage, where their voice can be heard.
1: And that segues into the next uh, iconic image from the book that. Uh, is in chapter three, and chapter three is entitled The Rise of the Modern Woman, and it covers the period from 1921 to 1948. And we have Amelia Earhart. And when we think of um, women's dress, it does go beyond actual dresses. Uh, Earhart was just iconic in in her image. Could you could you talk about uh, that section of the book?
0: Certainly. And especially
1: about Amelia Earhart.
2: Yeah. So Amelia Earhart is a name that most people know because she disappeared and became infamous in that way. But I think that the folks who work on women in aviation and Dorothy Cochran really led this effort as the curator for the Earhart objects wanted to tell the story of who she was, um, The first woman to cross the Atlantic, first as a passenger and later then as a pilot. And the ways that she really was positioning herself and women. Because this story of the birth of the modern woman really comes in this post-suffrage era. So whether suffrage extended to everyone, it certainly made a very big difference for those women who finally had some access to political power, at least in terms of the ballot. And so we wanted to tell the story not only of Bessie Coleman as an African-American early woman pilot or Harriet Quimby as a record setter, but then to Amelia Earhart, who really in this era in the 20s and 1930s. Becomes a modern celebrity. And so the bright red Lockheed Vega that she flew really, I think, spoke to that sense of putting herself forward in the public eye. And she was very aware of her position and of the position of women. So she was one of the founders of the 99s, which is a still existing women's aviation organization. She was the first woman who was the president of the 99s. Uh, The name comes from. The number of women who responded when they sent out a solicitation to all registered women pilots at the time, asking them if they'd like to be a part of a women's piloting organization, 99 responded. And so Amelia Earhart really was very aware of her role as a leader breaking barriers for women, but also then bringing women along with her. And so being able to show her flight goggles, the kind of heavy leather jacket that she was wearing that coat that she was wearing gives you a sense of just how rough those circumstances were in early unpressurized cockpits and then also what she was able to achieve so we have also a picture of the wooden chest that she had made which um was for keeping trophies and plaques that she had, highlighting her transatlantic, her flight between um, Mexico City and Newark, and her flight between Honolulu and Oakland, all carved into the sides of her trophy case. But we wanted her then as an emblem of this era of air-mindedness, where this kind of Nothing seemed more modern than people flying all over the place. And so she was really an important symbol for that and important actor for women generally in the field of aviation.
0: And I wanted to add something to that um, great description um, uh, by Margaret of the Amelia Earhart um, story. Uh, Amelia Earhart's objects also cross multiple museums, and that was something that I was very interested to get the curatorial um, editorial committee to think about, uh, because um, there were some you know wonderful objects for Earhart also in the in National Postal Museum, and to get curators to be exchanging ideas about the collection and the significance uh, from their perspective was something that we continued to have those types of discussions all the way through for all of the almost 300 objects that are in the book. And um, the strength of the Smithsonian collection, I think is at its best when we think about uh, how we collect and and where the objects rest, but then also in how we interpret these objects and collectively the story becomes richer um, as we're talking across units.
1: And that that really comes through both in this discussion and in the book that when you when you talk about, you know, reaching out to 100 curators and scholars, I was thinking that's a lot of personalities <laughs> um, that that's a tremendous living uh, library of, of uh, information and in all of those brains. And yet it's a lot of different personalities, a lot of different work styles and then when you say, you know, 66 people come back and say they're interested and 32 people show up in the meeting. I'm thinking, how do you do that? Because you have 32 very different people, as you say, working in very different buildings. And a lot of this stuff is not on display. It's in archives. So each of these 32 people represent a tremendous um, access point to a huge amount of information, which they are then going to be soliciting people in archives and assistance to help pull together. It's flabbergasting that this is a possible thing. And yet it's, I think, a a testament to to women's work styles, to um, some of the books we hear about women's CEOs, about the importance of collaboration, the importance of group projects. Could you kind of take a moment and, and, Help us be a fly on the wall to how some of these things, and you could use the Amelia Earhart example as a jumping off point or any of the other um, beautiful things in this book. How What sorts of skills and things come about to actually um, make this such a productive outcome?
2: Well, Well, I think the chance to work across units really was wonderful because there was this great cross collaboration that if you brought up a famous woman whose objects you had in your museum, then someone from the National Portrait Gallery would suddenly pop up. The Oh, we have a portrait of that woman in the collection and we could look at bringing that in. So I think that um, Michelle is very much... um, the architect of being able to bring all of those people together in the room so that we could have those conversations and have that kind of popping back and forth of, Oh, wait a minute. I think we have a this, or I think we have a that um, because we really, share so much of this history between, say, uh, the Postal Museum that covers topics that we have at Arid Space, that are also at American History, at African American History and Culture, at the Portrait Gallery, and then really a lot of times we were sorting through the balance of, you know, three-dimensional objects versus two-dimensional objects, and I do think that we need to give some shout out to the book design uh, for the ways that they were able to make even, you know, a membership card or a letter or a stamp or things like that kind of pop off the page and really reinforce the materiality of that, which I think um, gives it some heft, some sense of being able to page through the collections. And as you've said, that's so important right now when we can't necessarily show the collections or people can't come to see them in person. It's nice to be able to have that physical sense of them on the page.
0: And, uh, I, I want to let you all know that some people thought I was crazy trying to bring a uh, hundred <laughs> people together, uh, especially, uh, uh, curators, scholars, historians, archivists, uh, again, different methodologies, uh, different specialties, different expertise, uh, and a tight time timeframe. Uh, but I thought it was so important that we give this a try, and that we think about this as a first book for the initiative, uh, which, um, you know, later uh, has been named you know, because of her story. It's the American Women's uh, History Initiative at the Smithsonian. And this was an opportunity to take a first try at coming together, breaking down the silos, thinking about what would we put into this book you know, to highlight the treasures, again, that are as small as a stamp and as important as an airplane, as we've just been talking about with Earhart. Um, and this is not intended to be the only book. Part of my reason was to have these experts come together across Smithsonian to meet each other, to talk about the significance of their own research, to share those moments so that they would be inspired to do more. You know, what exhibits could come out of this? We don't have a physical exhibition coming out of this book. Um, We do have a digital presence on the Because of Her Story uh, site that you can see on the Smithsonian's website for women's history. But... What would come next, and that's—I think—that's really what's so exciting for me. I'm very proud of what our team put together in this book and how it came together. You know, but what was left out, and and where are the new collaborations, and what will the Portrait Gallery do? Uh, you know, what will the American History exhibitions look like? You know, from this book, a lot of discussion started on the girlhood exhibition that's coming up, hopefully this summer if we can get open again. But girlhood, it's complicated. When have we ever seen an exhibition like that at Smithsonian? But you think about the skateboard uh, that's described in the book and the collecting of that for the National Museum of American History. Um, There's just a lot of exchange that I hoped would happen. And just from listening to me today, I think, you know, that I have embraced collaboration and that I have, you know, I am an American studies major you know, a history PhD, but I really want to work with my colleagues uh, and, you know, have the books, the exhibitions, the digital history that we're able to put online uh, to be as inclusive as possible and to be as informed as possible. And we have so much expertise living, breathing, and all of us at the Smithsonian, uh, why not uh, put those energies together? And uh, yes, there were some naysayers, didn't think 100 people could do a book, Uh, but we upped that from 50 with Civil War uh, to 100 with Women's History. And, uh, you know, I'm a mother of sons. I have two boys in their 20s, and I want them to see this book. I want, you know, grandmothers to be sharing this book with grandchildren and and aunts and uncles to be sharing this book, uh, because I think it's that important. And I think the objects will surprise you, uh, even if there are only 250 words or 400 words on a page about an object. uh, You are introduced uh, to something of historical significance and something that uh, is being researched Uh, at the Smithsonian uh, for the long term. And now, very luckily, we have an initiative. We don't know if there will be a museum. That's not for us to decide. Uh, You know, that rests with Congress and the executive office long term. But what we know now is that we can do more at Smithsonian. We can hire more specialists across the institution, and we can work together in different ways uh, to bring American women's history forward. And that's, we were able to do that and we uh, will continue to do it. And I don't know if there'll be a volume two. I'm not thinking that there is, but I'm hoping there'll be new collaborations. And in
1: that spirit, uh, we were talking just before we started recording that this morning you were in a meeting about acquiring um, artifacts uh, for the the current protests that have been going on for three weeks, the Black Lives Matter movement that has come to the nation's forefront. It's certainly been around for a while, but it's now getting national news. That's uh, and, and I wonder also if we could talk about in chapter four, which is the time period from 1949 to 1967, and it's entitled Boycott, Sit-Ins, and Civil Unrest. And why I bring these two matters together is that chapter four opens with a mother's grief mobilizes the nation. And a mother's grief is mobilizing our nation in many ways right now and perhaps was part of your phone call uh, topics this morning. And I wonder if you could bring those, uh, those topics to our listeners.
0: Of course. Um, you can see in the media uh, that Smithsonian has been mentioned uh, for potential collecting uh, around Black Lives Matter and what's happening specifically here in Washington, D.C. Uh, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, the National Museum of American History and our smallest museum, the Anacostia Community Museum here in D.C., uh, have been leading that um, initiative. And this morning, uh, a few more of us joined the call, including the National Portrait Gallery and my own museum, the National Museum of uh, the American Indian. Uh, and so uh, we have become more used to collecting history as it happens. Unfortunately, it, it really started uh, with September 11th and the aftermath of the terrorist events there. Uh, but uh, the African American Museum has been um, very involved in collecting for Black Lives Matter since its uh, realization. And uh, that's continuing now. And you'll see a couple of pieces at the end of the book, uh, signage, a t-shirt from previous moments uh, in Black Lives Matter. Uh, and so it, it was really important uh, for us to consider that and for Smithsonian to consider moving forward in a very respectful way. I mean, the protests are continuing. We need to be thoughtful and respectful of what's happening. Uh, and we also have to uh, let organizers know that the mayor's office, the city, uh, chamber of commerce, uh, commerce, other people know that Smithsonian is interested in you know, bringing some examples of posters, artwork, uh, photojournalism into the collections to think about study for the future and for preserving for potential exhibition display Uh, and research for the future. So that's all happening. Uh, There's a a lot of discussion today about this week. Uh, We're going to have some powerful rain come through, uh, and uh, some pieces could be ruined with that. Uh, And then, again, who should collect? And, you know, there are national events happening as well. So uh, our D.C. local libraries and, and D.C. Historical Society as well to collect. Uh, how do we do this uh, thoughtfully? Library of Congress also collects at times for these moments, so we're going to, you know, be as collaborative as possible uh, and as thoughtful as possible in doing that. Uh, and, and so, in opening, uh, getting back to the opening of this chapter and a mother's grief uh, mobilizing the nation, uh, Mamie Till Mobley uh, was very instrumental and uh, in, uh, really bringing together. Uh, a nation following the death of her only son, Emmett Till in 1955, uh, in Mississippi. Uh, Emmett, uh, was sent on vacation to visit his uh, family. Was, uh, Mamie and Emmett lived in Chicago, and I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional just thinking about this story. Uh, and, uh, he was brutally murdered, uh, after being accused of making unwanted advances, um, uh, for white woman, a store owner uh, in uh, Mississippi. Uh, and if you go and visit the National Museum of African-American uh, History and Culture, you can see a very, very moving uh, section where uh, Till's uh, original casket is on display. Uh, some original video with Mamie speaking and talking about the event, talking about uh, the idea that she wanted an open casket uh, for all of the mourners and the American public and the media to see um, what had been done to her son, uh, the brutal treatment in in his death, and um, it motivated uh, a new uh, and and resurgence in civil rights in America. And Mamie, uh, till uh, the day she died, uh, many decades later in two thousand three, uh, was a very strong advocate. Uh, for civil rights and anti-lynching and uh, showing that mother's grief, uh, which was real uh, and very poignant. And uh, learning her story is an important one, uh, it is one that um, I didn't learn soon enough. And I hope that uh, including her story in, um, uh, and the imagery of her uh, in this book uh, will make a difference in, in just understanding uh, that uh, this is not new. Uh, in our nation's history, uh, and how we need to understand our history uh, and understand uh, how we can move forward.
1: And there's another strong statement that's included uh, just a few pages later in chapter four, uh, when you look at resilience against racism, and you have a 15-year-old girl who's taking a brave stand against segregated education, and you've chosen just a beautiful, uh, image to include there of her dress. And I wanted to talk about that because we have the first lady's dresses that we've talked about. We have the Seneca finery that we've talked about. And this dress that she wears on her graduation day to me is, um, I have no words for it. It's, it's just a glorious, beautiful dress that is itself is a, is a symbol of resilience. And I wonder if you can, take us to that page and talk to us about that.
0: Again, we had so many discussions about, uh, which clothing, which dresses to include. Uh, this was one, uh, that was pretty unanimous, uh, for, uh, inclusion. And I think, again, the story of a young girl being so brave, uh, to, um, to carry forward, um, and, and move into, uh, desegregating schools and and the significance um, of just her presence uh, and uh, the notion of uh, moving through uh, school as best she could getting suspended and um, and the bravery that it showed is is part of what we wanted to uh, bring uh, to the book and specifically in sharing her story and uh, you know kudos again to the curators who Um, over time have brought um, such significant objects into the collection for Smithsonian.
1: And so as we move from Miss Brown's beautiful dress, uh, we move into chapter five and we're going to talk about just one more artifact. Uh, There's so many in this book, but I want to talk about uh, in chapter five, the Olympic debut in hijab. And it's about a New Jersey girl who makes it to the two thousand and sixteen Olympics? And I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that,, uh, the selection of that item, about its place in sports history and in women's history.
0: You'll see in the book that we include um, some other uh, objects from the Olympics, um, you know things that you would think you know, right away, you know, the you know gymnast costumes and what they wore. Uh, and um, things that we, you know, think of maybe most often. So when we asked the curators of sports history at the American History Museum, you know, what do you think uh, we should include? Um, this came up right away. And to think about fencing, and to think about, um, you know, uh, Miss Muhammad who wore the mask, uh, you know, adorned with the American flag. Such a strong patriotic symbol uh, and earning a medal, a bronze medal in 2016. Uh, you know, the first uh, Muslim American woman to earn an Olympic medal. Um, there was, to me personally, sitting at the table and discussing what should be in the book, um, I thought we had to have this uh, because it, it just it shows how. We were changing, we were changing as a nation, sports were changing, Title IX and all that uh, brought to the opportunity for women to participate in sports. uh, And then uh, to be allowed, uh, to have oneself be allowed to be who they are uh, as well as what they are as an athlete um, was a very important story and uh, just continues to uh, be very relevant in, the projects uh, that we're trying to do, whether it be, you know, the sports sections that you see at the African American Museum or American History, uh, in telling the full and complete stories, and and no longer marginalizing or or not telling um, the complete story,
1: and that really helps sum up the the theme of chapter 5 which is it covers the period of 1968 to 2019 and it's entitled breakthroughs and backlash and one of the things that you you mention in the book is early on uh, it was a bit more difficult for women's artifacts to be donated to the Smithsonian one example you provide is there was a portrait of Susan B Anthony and it was it was turned down and it wasn't until the 19th amendment was passed and the person who, who had that uh, portrait offered it again, that the Smithsonian said, oh, yes, yes, we, we want that. And I contrast that with your phone call this morning where, um, you know, the Smithsonian is really taking the charge now in, in so many um, instances of saying, we're, we're looking for these things. Here's what, here's what we want. Um, can you talk a bit about that, um, that shift in the collections process and in how that helps women's artifacts be better represented?
0: We have a a long history of Smithsonian, as I mentioned, you know, starting in the mid-19th century. Uh, And, you know, for many years, uh, women's history was not at the forefront of collecting. For many years, there weren't women curators. Uh, You know, there were women volunteers, mostly unpaid uh, help that was uh, being given to different departments across the institution as it was in its beginning. And moved on to be multiple museums. So I think that there was uh, something to be said for these accomplishments and working towards that 19th Amendment. Here we come again to the reason why we uh, came together was again, having this publication for that momentous 100th anniversary, but thinking about how we could Um, tell our whole history as well. You know, the the fact that the Smithsonian sometimes isn't always right. And maybe we did wait too long to do this, but then it did happen. Uh, And it happened through the persistence of women and men who were thinking about uh, these objects in a historical sense. And that's when the barriers started to break down and that head of the unit for history, uh, said yes to the painting and the other objects that came from the national organization. Uh, and it, you know, paved the way, uh, for more, but, you know, going back to our earlier discussion, uh, the first ladies collection came in, um, probably six or eight years, uh, before that Susan B. Anthony portrait. Uh, so, you know, we were starting to see a change already uh, but it would be uh, a long time coming uh, till 2016 when we started to collectively talk about how we represent women in uh, women's history, art history, women in science. Uh, you know that is only now and uh, it's taken uh, courageous curators, uh, along these many decades to keep the pressure on it. And today we come to a point, uh, where it's a given and wow. Hallelujah. Uh, I'm so happy to be part of this Smithsonian when we can share these stories fully and we can, um, share them publicly, uh, so that, uh, even the mundane, uh, stories, even the most everyday story, uh, could be represented.
1: Michelle Delaney and Margaret Whitey Camp, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about Smithsonian American women, remarkable objects of stories of strength, ingenuity, and vision from the National Collection. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.